time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome back as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour joins me by phone. He is a uh, writer living in the Washington, D.C. area. He has... uh, work that has appeared in uh, print or online for the New York Times, the the New Yorker, Slate, Christian Science Monitor, New Republic, and and really many others. Um, His new book takes an interesting look back at World War II and how a team of inventors, tinkerers, and spies took down a Nazi superweapon. It's called 12 Seconds of Silence. He's called Jamie Holmes, and he joins me now by phone. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, Jamie, um, are, are you very interested in, in history? Do you look at history a lot? Or was there something about this story that took you back? I consider myself a science writer. Uh, almost all my writing is deals with science in some way. Um, and I, it's more that I had a fascination with the war. Both of my grandfathers fought in the war. On my father's side, it was, he was a, a B-25 pilot uh, who was shot down and survived that. Uh, on my mother's side, he was a Navy quartermaster. Uh, so I grew up hearing stories about the war and has always been fascinated by that era and sort of in awe by its how horrible it was, and what everyone sacrificed. Uh, so it was the combination of those two things that, that drew me to these stories, the science aspect, and, and then you know, the, the stories of these brave scientists and what they contributed. Well, and it was an era of great technological advancement, too. Um, but for some reason, there's something, something romantic about World War II that even 75 years later, we're... we're 
still coming out with with stories and aspects of it and is is this kind of a new take or is this group um oh they were referred to what as uh section t um are they have they been written about other than this there's one book on section t so usually when uh when this group is discussed it's discussed in a in the trifecta of the, the manhattan project and the radar advances at mit and then this is the third sort of group there's one book on it in 1980 um it was written by an insider who came late in the project. It has no uh, endnotes, no bibliography, no footnotes. Uh, it's sort of anecdotal. Uh, on top of that, m many of the uh, classified materials that I draw on from the book were only released in 1993. So this is the first full telling of the story. There are fragments of the story that have been told. There's this 1980s history, which in my opinion is, uh, is quite incomplete and, and not as well researched as, as it should be. Uh, it, so I've really drawn on a ton of archival documents. I moved to Washington, D.C. in order to do the archival work. I spent six months doing the archival work. And I found a lot of things about the story that have never been told before. So I consider it the first, the first full telling um, certainly, I'm the first one to draw on this vast archival research. And and um, in it, you talk about FD, FDR forming um, kind of a mismatched, inexperienced group um, that that got labeled Section T. Was was that an accident, or did FDR really know what he was doing when he assembled these unlike? Uh, cohorts yeah well early on so there's an engineer uh, named Van Yvar Bush who was the vice president of MIT and at the time he was the president of the Carnegie Institution of Washington which was a science the Carnegie funded science institution and he goes to FDR in June of 1940 and two days before the Nazis reach Paris, he proposes a new uh, organization then called the uh, NDRC, National Defense Research Committee. And it would be organizing science to the war effort. Now, this is 18 months before Pearl Harbor. So then Bush goes and he, and he starts to set up this organization. And the idea is they're going to make new weapons. They're going to be the research and development arm for the, you know, the arsenal of democracy, quote unquote. And so one of the people he goes to is this guy, Merle Tuve, and Section T is named after Merle Tuve. And at the beginning, in the early days, you know, before the war begins, they have this over a year uh, before things really start to ramp up. It really is a ragtag group. There's only four physicists working on the project at the beginning. They're only allowed to work part-time. Uh, they don't really have that much money. They only have $25,000 at the beginning. They can't. They don't have great cooperation even with the military early on. Um, what they're tasked with is finding a better way to shoot down airplanes. What they end up inventing is called the proximity fuse, the smart fuse, and what it is is a tiny radio sending and receiving device that you put into, uh, let's say, the bullet of an anti-aircraft gun. These big Navy gun, Army and guns that have 50-pound shells. And you put a little device in it, 
and they sent out a radio signal which would go out, bounce back off an enemy plane. It would recognize that the signal was bouncing back, and it would explode in proximity to the airplane. And this essentially made the targets 50 times bigger. At the beginning of the war, it was very, very difficult, surprisingly difficult, to shoot down an airplane. In the early weeks of the Blitz, uh, of, of the German bombing of London in 1940 in September, they said that the number of rounds from an anti-aircraft gun it took to shoot down an airplane was 20,000. So 20,000 shots to take down an airplane. Now, by the end of the war, with this smart weapon, it's taking 100 rounds per airplane. So there's this revolutionary change in you know, one of the major scientific challenges of the war is how can we get better at shooting down airplanes? Um, and there's several parts to that puzzle, and one of the main parts of the puzzle is this uh, smart fuse that you put in, a, in an anti-aircraft shell. W- was so at the beginning, they're... Go ahead. Was yeah. it smart fuse a sort of, um, I don't know, a rethinking of how radar works? It's been called a little radar device. Um, I mean, it, it goes out. The technology is slightly different, but it, it's a pretty simple device. Um, sending out a little radio signal, listening for the radio signal to come back, you know, a couple amplifier tubes to amplify that signal to explode the shell. It wasn't so much the technology that was a great struggle. It was trying to get it to work inside an anti-aircraft shell. If you can imagine, for a bomb, if you want to put a tr- that kind of a triggering device on a bomb, you just drop it. That's the force of gravity. A space shuttle, when it launches, is three times the force of gravity. Rockets at the time were 100 times the force of gravity. But an anti-aircraft gun, the pressure inside that a bullet undergoes, a shell undergoes, is 20,000 times the force of gravity. So you had these very delicate electronics uh, in this device that you had to make really rugged and really strong. I compare it to trying to shoot a light bulb out of a pistol, a working light bulb out of a pistol. (laughs) That was really the engineering challenge that they had in 1940. Um, But uh, quickly to finish your, your question, so early on, they're trying to get this done, and they're, they said, can we get these rugged parts to survive these enormous pressures? They can't get liaison with the Navy who's sponsoring the project, so they have to build their own anti-aircraft gun. They build their own you know, test bullets, test shells. They look up dynamite in the yellow pages because they don't know where to get blasting powder. They can't get access to a firing range, so they go to like their friend's backyard, this farm in Virginia, and start testing their makeshift gun, and they almost blow themselves up. So, of course, after Pearl Harbor, no, it wasn't ragtag. They were they were well organized and well funded. But in those early days, uh, it was it had this sort of haphazard quality to it. It's um, interesting. Was was this group also tasked with trying to figure out ways to take? Uh, uh, Nazi rockets had they uh, um, become a significant threat out of the sky? Rockets on the Allied side, at least, were not effective during the war. We did have a, a rocket program uh, for for these fuses, but they didn't work very well. The launchers weren't very good, um, so the, the the way the army estimated it, the this, this smart fuse in the application for anti-aircraft shells was nine times more important than it was 
in bombs and rockets. And that's because you could use it to shoot down airplanes. You could also use it as an anti-personnel weapon, which it was used in the bulge as an anti-personnel weapon. But, but the short answer is uh, they, were, they were relatively unimportant, the rockets. And, and how was it um, that, that this group, who were they? Where did they come from, these inventors, tinkerers, and spies? Section T um, began in an organization called the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism. And it was uh, a Carnegie-funded research institute. Um, and they were physicists. So they were atom smashers. Um, they were working on nuclear physics, experimental nuclear physics. And then you know, it, it began with this man, Merle Tooth, um, who's from South Dakota. He's kind of this fiery guy, sharp-elbowed guy. And he begins to hire some of his friends. He says, work on this with me in your spare time. And then the, at the end of the war, it's 1,000 people. Um, but it begins in this small research institute, and then it grows and grows and grows, and eventually is, is mo they move uh, to the suburbs, to Silver Spring, Maryland, and they call themselves the Applied Physics Laboratory, and they have their own headquarters, which gets quite large by the end of the war. Uh, but initially, they're, they're physicists who are trying to figure out how to make weapon, and they have no, obviously no experience in this, but physicists of the time, experimental physicists of the time, were tinkerers. Uh, they had to sort of make their contraptions, make their experimental contraptions. So they had a lot of background in building things, in electrical engineering. You know, you had to sort of know how to blow glass and, and, use, and use machines all the time. So they did have experience in that. And then they hired uh, uh, amateur radio operators and uh, anyone with uh, any kind of technical knowledge that could that could help. This is fascinating and and multifaceted, and I want to get into some of those other facets um, with you, Jamie. If uh, if you can stick around for a little bit. Sure. Okay, I have a break coming up here in about a minute and a half. Uh, if you're listening to us on 92.1 FM, our voice is radio in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House, Spectacle Productions, and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then we'll return and uh, talk some more with Jamie Holmes, the author of 12 Seconds of Silence, how a um, team of inventors, tinkerers, and spies took down a Nazi, a Nazi superweapon. Um, Jamie, when we, uh, when we come back, I, I want to get into this, uh, and, and it's, it's a big part of your book, the race between the proximity fuse and the Nazi V-1 drone and this uh, sort of spy versus spy thing <laughs> that's that's going on in the book. Um, anyway, uh, Jamie, thanks for sticking around. We will uh, take a short break and we'll be back with uh, more of the Tom Sumner program. Also, if you miss anything on the Tom Sumner program, you can always go to our website and search the archives and uh, find um, saved there hour by hour all the uh, wonderful 
conversations like this one. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. The marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You'll thrill to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel, and who can ever forget this all-time classic... Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jefferson Airplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Golden Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... 
It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70K. Do it today. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is a writer uh, who has a, uh, a new book. It's called 12 Seconds of Silence, How a Team of Inventors, Tinkerers, and Spies Took Down a Nazi Super Weapon. And uh, we're going to talk about that and much, much more with the author, Jamie Holmes, who is uh, with me by phone. Jamie, welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. Oh, thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. Uh, just before the break, I mentioned that there was uh, a, a spy versus spy element of uh, yeah. your your book um, <laughs> for all the Mad Magazine fans out there. Um, but but really, you talk about um, the Americans had this uh, in, incredibly uh, high tech proximity fuse that dramatically changed the accuracy of bombings and efforts to shoot. Um, uh, Nazi planes out of the sky who were at the time just pounding on London. But there was also the Nazi V-1 drone. And so we there were German spies trying desperately to uh, find and or undermine the proximity fuse. And then vice versa, there were American spies trying to find and or undermine the Nazi V-1 uh, drone. Um, who won? <laughs> Gotta buy the book. Gotta buy the book, Tom. Oh, um, sorry, didn't mean to. <laughs> didn't mean to have to uh, have a spoiler no, no. alert there. No, no, no. It's it's a really fascinating story. The race between these two secret technologies. So the V one is the Vergeltungswaffe one. This is what Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels called it: Revenge Weapon One. And it was a forty-nine hundred pound robot bomb, a precursor to the cruise missile or a drone. It had an 1,800-pound warhead. It looked like a little airplane. It had a 20-foot wingspan. It went very, very fast, 408 miles per hour. And the German Luftwaffe flung uh, over 7,000 of these in the, over the summer of 1944 toward England, mostly toward London from these 150-foot rails, raised rails, they called them catapults, in occupied France. And they would fly over, the, over England, and they were really too fast for the English airplanes to catch and shoot down. And around the same time, um, this is after D-Day, you know, Hitler, a week after D-Day, they began as, 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 as a response to D-Day, unleashing this arsenal of secret drones on London. And at this around the same time the proximity fuse begins to the American proximity fuse begins to arrive in England. And in late July and in August they have this face off. Uh, and I can say that you know before the fuse arrives, it, it really in August nineteen forty four the fuse is in most of the guns. Now they had to move the guns. The English anti-aircraft defenses were not set up on the coast for various reasons. 
But in mid-July, they moved them all to the coast to give the guns priority over the airspace, over the English planes. They say, okay, the English planes, you've had your chance. You haven't been taking down enough of the V1s. Now let's give the anti-aircraft guns a shot. And so that in early August, by early August, the guns are on the coast. The fuse arrives. Before the fuse arrives, the guns are getting 9% of V1s down, shooting 9% down. By the end of August, they're shooting 79% of the, of the V1s down. And, by, and that effectively, by September, the V1 attack is effectively over. By January of 1945, according to General Frederick Pyle, who's the head of anti-aircraft command, uh, Britain's anti-aircraft command, the, the proximity fuse is responsible for the 100% successes that his gunners were regularly getting against the V-1. So you go from 9% to 100% in, in a very short period of time. Um, he says that uh, gunners learned more in 80 days than they had learned in the previous 30 years. So it's, it's, it's a remarkable story. And, and with that, um, the proximity fuse itself has been described as America's first smart weapon. Did smart weapon technology grow organically from that? That's a good question. Uh, I, I think the reason they call it a smart fuse is because it, it basically, it has a, you know, it doesn't activate immediately. So it has to sort of turn itself on because you don't want to endanger the gunners. And then it asks a question, right? It sends out the radio signal. So, and then it, and then it receives its own answer. So it asks a question by sending out the radio signal. The radio signal bounces back. It listens for the answer, and then it responds based on the answer. Um, I, I know that the proximity fuses are still made today, and they're still important. And, in fact, Gary Powers uh, was shot down. The spy was, was shot down in, uh, by a, a Russian proximity fuse. Um, but in terms of the lineage of smart technology in general, I don't know. Yeah, it just it just seems like uh, uh, a lot of our best developments are are things that have evolved over time and and stand on work that had previously been done. And I just I just wondered if if uh, anybody had connected the dots between this uh, proximity fuse and the kind of smart weaponry we see today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was a lot of a lot of uh, huge advances, as you know, uh, that came out of the war. And uh, the collaboration between uh, scientists and the military, uh, of course, you know, you could say that the, the quote-unquote military-industrial complex uh, came out of this organization, arose from the ashes of this organization of scientists. Um, so, yeah, it changed, it changed everything. Now, World War two ended in 1945 and you talk about Russian proximity fuses um, is is that was that copying the technology that America had developed or had Russians been working on their own because it's a very short time after World War two before that Gary Powers u2 uh, flight is shot down yeah well when is it it's uh, 1960. 60 or I, I, something makes me want to say like 62. That. Yeah. 
So it turns out that well, Gary Powers was shot down with a Russian rocket. So that's a lower, uh, the, the electronics wouldn't have to withstand the same pressures as a, in an anti-aircraft shell. But it does turn out that um, that the Russians um, were, did seek, and in fact, we hid um, we hid uh, the fuse technology from them. There's a there's a story where um, there's a story where the Russians are are coming to see the British uh, coastal defenses, coming to observe the guns, and the British are very carefully uh, hiding the fuses so that the Russians don't see them. Uh, so we deliberately didn't share it with them. Um, and then, of course, um, Julius Rosenberg was delivered a smart fuse I, I, near the end of the war and gave it to the Russians. It wasn't a smart fuse for shells. It was probably a fuse for rockets. So it wasn't the really coveted one that was built to withstand the higher pressure. <laughs> but it would have been enough to copy. Now, it turns out there was a study. They did the study how long would it take to reverse engineer this technology or how long would it take the Germans to, to copy us if they found a dud? And it turned out for a rocket, it would probably be nine months or something like that. For a shell, the hardest application, it would probably take a year and a half, something like that. And that was why we released the fuse against German troops because we felt the war would be over before they could turn it around. So probably the technology was such that by 1960, it wouldn't have been a problem for the Russians to figure this out themselves. They would have enough time. As I said, the circuitry wasn't the complicated part of the story. The complicated part was, was getting it to withstand these pressures, and they would have been able to figure that out in a couple of years, regardless of, of Rosenberg's uh, stealing this technology. With the... Why is it that... Um and we talked a little bit about this when we first started talking, Jamie, but why is it that we're still so fascinated with World War II? Is it because of the technology advancements, because so many countries were involved, because of the efforts made here in this country to support the war effort? What is it about World War II that has us revisiting aspects of it all the time even yeah. now? I, 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 that's a great question. Um, I can offer a few possible answers. Um, I, I, it's the stakes, as you said. I mean, the whole world is sort of collapsing very quickly. There's this malevolent force, which is expanded faster than anyone predicted. Um, so there are sort of lessons about responding to evil. There's this incredibly selfless, for me, that's where I get emotional. If you think about how selfless many Americans were in sacrificing their children, uh, their efforts, their careers, and coming together and uh, under incredible pressure accomplishing this, this uh, terrific victory. And of course, it's um, you know, there's a there's a speech that the head of Section T gives at the end of VE Day after the European War was over, and he says something like, "This cascade of of uh, horrible news 
has left us uh, confused and barely able to be happy about anything. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, um, it was traumatic, and, and even the victory was traumatic. But for me, the emotional part is the sacrifice in facing this sort of uh, horrific foe, uh, this horrific evil, and summoning the courage and the discipline uh, uh, to fight it and making it through this dark tunnel when things are looking very, very dark and, and finding a way to fight through. So that's, uh, that's what resonates uh, with me. We find ourselves in a in another world crisis with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, are there lessons to be learned from World War II that could and should be applied to how we address uh, the danger of this uh, pandemic? I, I think I think there are to the extent that you know we're interested in in, in making the comparisons. I think. But for me, what stands out is how well science was organized. Uh, it was run by this engineer and inventor, Van Everbush, uh, who developed one of the first analog computers, by the way. He was a wonderful inventor. And he had a, a lot of foresight in the way that he organized science and the way that he protected himself politically from interference and protected his scientists from political interference. It's an interesting story. So he goes, he's the vice chairman of what's called NACA, the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics, which is the precursor to NASA. It's an organization that does aeronautics research for the military. And in 1939, he goes before Congress as vice chairman of this organization, and he's asking for more money because the Germans are far ahead of us in, in aviation research. And he's saying, look, they have a lot more uh, 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 researchers working on this. They have a lot more money. They have bigger research institutes. They have more research institutes. And we are falling far behind. And you need to fund us for another research institute out in California. And he's met with this sort of skepticism. You know, I, he, he, he says in an interview of his that I had trouble with these senators. I went back and I found the transcripts, and they're amazing transcripts. Where he's fighting with the senators, and the senators are saying, well, I don't know, you're figuring on war. Do you really think that the Germans could ever, you know, uh, bomb over long distances? Do you really think so? I mean, I don't think it'll ever happen. Why are you being so alarmist? So he, eventually they do give him the money. But he didn't have faith in Congress. He said American leadership was asleep on the technical end, quote-unquote. So I think he saw early on technology has advanced a lot in the 30s. The Army and Navy research labs aren't putting enough money in basic research that could lead to radical new breakthroughs. And so I'm going to have to do this myself or organize something myself, or I should. So what he does is he goes to uh, Bush, and I think he got advice from Hoover, who was a friend of his, on how to do this. I know they were corresponding uh, on this topic, on how you might organize this. And he goes to FDR and he says, okay, let's set this up. 
And the way they set it up is very specific and kind of strange in, in that he doesn't report through the normal military channels. So he's going to report directly to FDR. Also, at the beginning, there's really no, effectively no congressional oversight because they're going to draw their money from the executive directly. Now, after the war, money's no problem. But early on, they use this old statute from World War I to set up this institution that Bush calls it an end run. He says something like, uh, <laughs> milita the military, you know, they later said, I, I took an end run, and that really this was a power grab of a few small group of scientists acting outside of established channels to get hold of the program for developing new weapons. That, in fact, is exactly what it was, end quote. Um, so this very clever, and he has impeccable timing, right? He catches Roosevelt two days before the Germans meet, reach Paris. And he gets this organization set up and sort of is protected. And later he has fights with the military about introducing new technology because some of the commanders don't want to or are skeptical of new technology. So I think um, his political talents and his foresight he saw, okay, I don't want congressional oversight at the beginning. I want to be protected from military skeptics. Um, was incredible, and he saw that he saw that the political part of science was central, and and faced that head on. Um, and he also saw that there was going to be problems. Um, financially, or he, he foresaw, he, he knew enough to avoid any financial entanglement. So he doesn't want any companies making money off of their wartime research, and they had a clause that there would be no profits off of research done under the umbrella of this organization, which eventually was called the Office of Scientific Research and Development, which oversaw the atom bomb and advances in radar and the smart fuse, many other devices, duck boats, many other things, penicillin, blood substitutes. Um, so, um, I think, I think that's what stands out is his, his foresight, um, and his willingness to engage in politics and his understanding that the politics was actually the first challenge. It wasn't just the science. It, it wasn't just a, a question of organizing the science. And that was his role during the war was sort of fighting these political battles. Oh, I should have added, I got lost there a little bit. So no funding, uh, no profits on the research that they did. And the United States government would own all the patents. So all the patents became government property. When he later bragged, I've probably destroyed more property in the, in the form of patents than any other man ever living. <laughs> um, hey, I, and you had other... Go ahead. Yeah. May, you, um, when you were talking about some of the Senate transcripts that you looked through... Mm -hmm. Um, and and some of what they were saying to Bush and and others, um, I, I got the impression that this fairly contemporary concept of um, science denial is not new. Yeah, that's right. It, it's it's strange because the the technical knowledge that you needed to understand the threat was limited really to, to the scientific circles. You had to know what exactly the latest science was and how cutting edge it was and know the possibilities to understand 
the threat that science was going to pose during the war. And the politicians didn't have that knowledge, really. Uh, I mean, what happens in these, when he's asking for money is they say, well, we already have a research facility in my home state of Virginia, and so why don't you just expand the facility in my state? They play politics with it. Right? They want the money for their state. They're having these geographical battles, really, is what they're doing, instead of seeing the bigger threat. Um, so, yeah, and, and Bush says, Vanny Roe Bush says, uh, you know, things like uh, trying to change anything in the Navy. Is, oh, no, actually, that's Roosevelt. Roosevelt says trying to change anything in the Navy is like punching a feather bed. So it's the Navy, <laughs> it's the Congress, right? Um, uh, and I, they saw that as the, as the, primary, as the primary problem. Uh, in 1938, the Army only spent 1.5% of its budget on research. Uh, Bush complains that the Navy treated radar like a hobby project. He complained, I believe in a letter to Hoover, that whenever a military man is queried, he responds that the only answer to an airplane is another airplane. So Bush is thinking of radar with that, with that comment. Right. So he was aware in 38 and 39 that it just wasn't getting through. Um, and it wasn't going to be enough to speak truth to power. This sort of stance of scientific neutrality, I just say the truth and that's all I can do. He saw that that wasn't going to be sufficient. And so he hatched a political plan, overtly political plan. Um, and uh, it was really heroic. He had this amazing combination of kind of like managerial, organizational genius, and scientific expertise, and he was a very connected guy. He knew everybody. He knew how to organize. He thought a lot about organizing. He liked to think about how to organize um, scientific brain power. He was interested in it. He was interested in patents and how they work. So he, he's this remarkable character that comes along at the perfect time and has an enormous impact on the war, really, by being a brilliant uh, administrator and having this uh, uh, kind of political skill that he picks up. He talks about, just incidentally, he talks about going, you know, first in 1939. He, he says, like, I kind of got my butt kicked. He's like, they, they, they didn't <laughs> believe me. I didn't get the money. He goes back to his wife. He says, I just lost, you know, the research institute. I just lost them $5 million. And as the war goes on, he gets more and more politically skilled and wise. And there's this hilarious anecdote where he goes before Congress at the end of the war, six years later or something, and a senator or a congressman is haranguing him and, and, and harassing him with some of the questions. And he sort of drones on. He has a way of, of uh, kind of responding that's not giving them anything to fight with. And they say, well, sir, you, know, you seem to be talking a lot but not saying anything. And he says, well, I have a lot of practice. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Unfortunately, we are just, uh, we are just coming up on the uh, end of our time, Jamie, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about the book, about you, about other things that you're working on. Do you have a website? I do have a website. It's my name, uh, jamieholmesbooks.com. J-A-M-I-E-H-O-L-M-E-S, books.com. And everything's on there, or, you know, the books on Amazon or your favorite, uh, your favorite retailer. 
Well, Jamie, thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning. It's uh, it's a fascinating book and subject, and I wish you well with it and all the other things you're doing. Tom, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. It was great chatting. All right. Take care. Okay, bye. And with, and with that, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more right after this. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. 
We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman steady sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman's sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. There are many shows on the air which are basically interview shows, and they start out in a very austere setting. Uh, there's the interviewer, he sits behind a desk, and in the background somewhere, some figure in the news sits. He's later in the show blinded by a spotlight. <laughs> I like to present one of these shows. They start off very dramatically, something like this. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Wallace, Nightline. Our guest in the studio tonight is Dr. Warner von Warner, one of the many German missile scientists involved in our American missile program. Dr. von Warner, I suppose the question most often asked you, you were involved in the German missile program, you're now involved in our missile program. Was the fact that you were involved in the German missile program a matter of political conviction, or was this political expediency on your part. <laughs> oh, boy, that one, huh? <laughs> Actually, I didn't, I didn't have that much to do with it, to tell you the truth. Um, this is back around 1940. I was working at a beer garden in Stuttgart. <laughs> And like on Friday night, you know, the waitresses and the waiters, we'd go to one of the girls' pads, you know, and uh, <laughs> order some pizzas and some schnapps and get half-gassed, you know. <laughs> and I used to fool around with these inventions, you know, and I'd take this tin can and put a firecracker underneath it, and i like the firecracker, and the thing go four or five feet up in the air, you know. And everybody'd say, what the hell was that? Or what a nut that Warner is. Somebody want to get Warner's hat. You know, something like that. Except there's one party. A little guy walks over, he's got a little mustache and a... <laughs> piece of hair falling on his <laughs> He says, hey, that, uh, that was interesting what you did with a, with a tin can there. <laughs> but uh, what, uh, what causes that? Eh? I said, well, see, that's, um, for every action, there's a reaction, you see. And the, the force of the firecracker is it's, see, it's, first of all, it starts toward the floor. But the top of your can, see, it's... <laughs> Every time I do it, it jumps four He <laughs> says, what, uh, what do you call that thing there? I said, that's, uh, that's a Arcot. <laughs> it's named after my landlord, Irving Arcot. <laughs> see, I was, I was about three months behind in the end, you know, and comes a knock at the door, and he says, look, Warner, you know, you got to knock off with the firecrackers in the middle of the night. You know, because the neighbors are complaining. And don't hand me the Madame Curie bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> what her landlord wanted to do about her rent, that's his business. I want my rent, see? 
I said, look, I'm working on an invention. If it works out, I'll name it after you. He says, you're going to call it an Irving? <laughs> so, no, I'm going to call it a rocket. So anyway, the guy at the party, little mustache, piece of hair falling in his eyes. He says, that would make a terrific weapon, you know that? <laughs> I said, well, you'd have to get right on top of the guy. <laughs> hit him in the face or something like that with, with a tin can to really hurt him. I think your big problem is going to be getting that close to the guy. You know? He says, no, no, what if, what if we took a hundred firecrackers and a great big tin can, see? I said, well, we saw of that, but your problem there is, see, by the time you light the fuse on the last firecracker, He said, look, the, the, reason, the reason I'm asking you all this, I'm headed to German people. I said, oh. I said, uh, you know, congratulations. I, you know. I hadn't seen a paper in a couple of days, so I took a verse. He says, would you like to be involved in our MISA program? I said, well, you know, I got a pretty good thing going at the, at the beer garden. You know. He says, look. <laughs> he says, it's a civil service job. <laughs> Three fifty a month. When you're 55, you go down to Baden Baden and forget the whole scene. <laughs> so anyway, all they want me to do, I sign these requisitions. Liquid oxygen, I don't know what it is. I'm signing Warner von Warner, and every month, three fifty. There it is, like clockwork. <laughs> Anyway, make a long story short, we lose the war. <laughs> and the Americans come to me, you know, and I've been getting offers from the Russians and all that, and they say, look, Warner, you know, we've seen your name on some of the requisitions, and uh, how'd you like to be involved in the American missile program, you know? I said, look, actually, I didn't have that much to do with it, you see. I mean, I was at this party in Stuttgart, see? <laughs> They said, ne never, mind, never mind, we need a name. No, we so anyway, I, I, I took the job, and uh, there it is, four fifty a month. When I'm 55, I go down to Fort Lauderdale, and <laughs> it's a pretty good deal. Well, uh, Dr. Von Warner, our time is running out on us. Uh, we have now put a man in space. The Russians, some two or three weeks before that, had put a man in space. Was this the eventual plan of the German missile program to put a man in space? Oh, we, we put a man in space. Oh, sure, back in uh, 1940. I put my brother-in-law, Herman, I put him on. <laughs> well, now, that's amazing because, of course, the, the big problem we found uh, putting a man in space was the problem of reentry. And uh, apparently in 1940, you had already solved that problem. Well, what problem is this you're talking about? <laughs> Well, Dr. Von Warner, we want to thank you very much for stopping by and wish you continued success. Well, thank you very much. Now, are you going to give me the money or are you send a check to me? This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
one thing about this world you can't depend on anything The leaders that we follow, they can't even write their name But here we are in America, ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on Turn to crime And politicians know it's true But they ain't got no time And here we are in America Nothing seems to change It just goes on and on and on But there may be people Who truly do care They may be mighty But still they lack the key I pray that someday These people will finally declare Not even heroes can do
the Tom Sumner Program.com. Hi, I'm Alexander Zondrick. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 